and welcome to the very first episode of Me Head is Wrecked with Tony Kelly. I'm your host, of course, Tony Kelly. If you didn't listen to the promo that was released earlier this week, or if you don't know who I am in general, I am an actor, writer, comedian, filmmaker, pro wrestling commentator, radio host, and now podcaster. And this podcast is going to be all about mental health, addiction, but mostly recovery. I'm going to be talking to friends of mine, fellow creatives, anyone like that who's been through the mill with their mental health or addiction or both, and try and tell their stories and try and give a bit of inspiration and, of course, spread the message as well. Now, to the point, uh, this is the very first episode of the show, and I thought if I'm going to have people coming on here opening up, being vulnerable, telling me their stories, their intimate stories, that really I should man up and tell my story first. I think it's only fair. I think it's the right thing to do. And as scary as it is, that's exactly what I'm going to do first off. Um, It was always my intention at some point in the show to do my story And I've kind of been putting it off and then searching for the quote-unquote right first guest for the podcast to launch it. And it just kind of dawned on me the other day when I realized that uh, today, Sunday the 24th of November 2019, I am so grateful and so thankful to be six years clean and sober. And I just thought, what what better of a day to number one, launch this podcast with the theme of it and stuff like that. But number two, to actually tell my story and to man up, by the way, and tell my story. Um, This is by far uh, the most difficult thing I've probably ever done. Uh, and I've done a lot of difficult things. But this is by far, I think, the most difficult thing I've ever done is sharing this story with the world, uh, the public, Uh, People who know me, people who don't know me. It's a very difficult thing to do, but it's the right thing to do, I think. Uh, As I said already, people are going to be coming on this podcast and telling me very intimate details about their lives, their struggles, their recoveries, their darkest times. And it's only fair that I set the tone, set the bar, and tell my story first. So look, let's just do that. That's what the first episode is going to be about. Uh, Tony Kelly, my story. Uh, to try and do the right thing, as I, and as I said, to set the tone for the rest of the show. Today, I'm very proud and very happy, as I already said, to be celebrating six years of sobriety and being clean from drugs and alcohol. Um, and I'm so proud of that, but there's a lot of mental health background in my story as well and in my recovery. So what I've done is, so that this episode is not just me talking for an hour, and you're not just listening to my voice only. I've asked uh, a friend of mine, Emily O'Callaghan, from Hot Press and from the Green Rebel podcast, to come on and interview me and be the first ever guest host. Not just the first guest, but the first ever guest host on the podcast. And Emily has graciously agreed to do that for me. I feel comfortable around Emily. She's a very good friend of mine. She's a great interviewer. She's a great human being. Best of all. So look, without any further ado, I could go on all day and try and delay this, but I'm not going to. Please enjoy the very first episode of Me Head is Wrecked with Tony Kelly. If you like it, if you enjoy it, share it, subscribe on iTunes, follow on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And look, just enjoy. Here we go. The very first episode. My story, Tony Kelly, guest host, Emily O'Callaghan. Enjoy. Enjoy.
Right, here we are, episode one, Me Head is Wrecked with Tony Kelly and in untraditional fashion, um, my very first episode of the podcast, I'm handing over the reins of my own podcast to somebody else to interview me. I'm here with Emily O'Callaghan. Emily, thank you very much for taking the time to be here with me. Thank you for asking me, Tony. I'm honoured to be your first guest host. Yes, my first guest host and probably the only guest host, so it'll be an even better honour. But no, I I actually couldn't think of anyone uh, who I would have rather do it. Uh, than you and uh, the whole idea with this of course as I've already said in the intro is that if I'm going to have people coming on this podcast sharing their intimate stories and uh, I suppose their vulnerability I should be the one to step up to the plate first and do it and I think that's the most honourable thing to do and obviously we've been friends a long time you've interviewed me on your own podcast the Green Rebel podcast and uh, yeah I feel comfortable you know, we're sitting in your living room and it's it's going to be lovely, I think. Exactly. Relax and sit back and tell me all your deep, dark secrets. <laughs> Talk about the darkness and the light, of course. Exactly. Well. Very important. So uh, we're here. We're in Emily's living room here in Dublin. It's, it's very nice. I've made the trip up the M9, which I do most weeks. Uh, so, Emily, the podcast is now yours. Consider the reins handed over. Thank you, Tony. Good evening, everyone, or good morning, or good afternoon, whenever you're listening, depending on. I'm really, really honoured to be hosting this Q&A, I guess, with with Tony uh, about his journey. I've known him, as he said, a few years, and I've never really sat down and heard the full story. So this is going to be really, really interesting to hear for all of us. And I'm going to just kick off by congratulating Tony on what's coming up to, as he says, please God, his sixth year clean. Yeah, please God. Today, uh, being the 24th of November, when you're listening to this, hopefully, or afterwards, I will have hopefully touch wood I'm touching the wooden table in front of me that I'll have reached six years clean and sober thank you <laughs> and how does that feel for you um to be honest I think it's not something we're supposed to pat our ba- ourselves on the back for because it's not about ego it's about uh recovery and it's about uh living your life I suppose um yeah it feels good it, it feels like a bit of an accomplishment, but I think as the years are going by, it's becoming about less about patting myself on the back and more about uh, driving forward and kind of being more ambitious and um, just putting the years under my belt in the sobriety, but more just about kind of going full steam ahead into life more so than focusing on the actual being clean and sober, to be honest. Absolutely. And you are doing a lot of stuff. We caught up there a few days ago and you let us know a few things. Will you fill us in on what you're up to and how productive you are now that you have nothing to hamper you? Yeah, I think, again, it's it, that's kind of part of it as well, is trying to keep ego in check and not ce- not, necess- not necessarily not celebrating your accomplishments, but definitely taking it on board. But uh, I find that in the last six years, the ambition that I've always had has, has just been like tenfold because I suppose you're knocking back distractions that would have been there and now all I have in my life is the ambition you know so um obviously I've I've now started this podcast which has been something three or four years in the making that I've finally come around to but again I think the timing is finally right to do it now um I've just gotten back from Budapest where I shot an episode of The Alienist which is uh, season two of that which is called The Angel of Darkness which is going to be on Netflix yeah I think anyway Netflix it's on TNT in the States for any of our American listeners and I I believe it'll be on Netflix in the in, in Europe um, that was great great experience obviously to work with an unbelievable cast 
Dakota Fanning, Daniel Brule, uh, Ted Levine from um, Silence of the Lambs. Wow. Yeah, really, really such. And, and obviously, like uh, David Caffrey, the Irish director who did Love Hate, was the director of the episode. So, I mean, to work with him was just amazing as well. That was great. Uh, I have my own radio show on WLR. Sound out with Tony Kelly on Saturday night, 7 till 10. I do colour commentary for Over the Top Wrestling here in Ireland. Uh, and yeah, more stuff to come, even even more stuff to come in, in 2020. That's so exciting. And it's also incredibly difficult to live in Ireland with all of the distractions, especially coming up to Christmas. Now, oh, will you not come for a few pints, blah, blah, blah. I feel like my vibe from you is you're, you're over that, you're past that. And not to, you know say that it's in any way easy because it's not but you seem quite strong in your mind about sticking to sobriety yeah it was a decision that had to be made and obviously we'll get into the whole story in a minute um but it was i mean i've known that there won't be a drink coming into my life for maybe eight years now which is a long time like i'm only 34 now so you think eight years ago, I'd already, probably nine years ago. Well, no, no, more eight years ago, I knew that, you know, drink was not going to be a thing that was going to be in my life. So it's almost like something that's not an option. Like, you know, like it's just something I don't do. So it never becomes a problem in my mind because it's just not an option for me. That's the way I think of it now. It certainly wasn't that way at the start, especially at a young age. But now it's just like alcohol is just not something that is in my life like I don't eat uh, well I don't eat a lot of things that's a, that's a separate issue with another show that might come up in 2020 but like there's there's stuff I don't eat like as if I say if I don't eat um, peppers I don't like peppers right well I don't like a hundred things but I don't like peppers so I just don't eat them so it's, alcohol is like something I don't put into my body so it's not an option for me that's the best way I can deal with it I suppose but that's not to say that Christmas is not difficult New Year is not difficult thankfully I'm hosting a show on WLR and I'm bringing in the new year live on the air this year because New Year's Eve is always really, really difficult for me to be honest with you. Mental health wise and obviously um, sobriety wise. So thankfully I've got that distraction to look forward to this year. But it is difficult not to have a bottle on Christmas morning with your family or Christmas. You know, that, that is difficult. But again, it's just not an option. So back, let's bring it back to let's say 10 years ago. Yeah. What do you think it was that was leading you down that la- that path to more than, you know, the average, I'm going to say eight pints a lad has in a pub right, on a okay. night, or that I know you moved to New York and the scene there was even maybe easier to get, to get your hands on different things. Mm-hmm. What was going on with you, do you think, or is it well, difficult to answer? No, it's not. Um, I think... I had, like, even if I take myself back to secondary school, um, I think something changed in me when I was about 16, and I feel like that was depression for the first time. Uh, I'd felt a betrayal for the first time in my life. Like, one of my friends, I felt, betrayed me. And at 16, you know, like, your kids. But I had felt he'd gone behind my back, and it was to do with a girl, as it always is, you know? And I remember walking back from lunch at, we, we were probably 16. I think we were in transition year. So I was 15 or 16. And I remember finding out the, this news. You know, it's about a girl. I liked her and she liked me and then she liked him. It's the same story that everyone's probably experienced. But I remember, I remember feeling so betrayed by the fact that they'd done this. That something, it felt like something broke in my mind. And I remember sitting outside class to go in. 
and not being able to put my thoughts together properly. Something had broken in me. And genuinely, I don't think I've been the same since that day. It was like a traumatic episode. And I think that was depression for the first time properly in my life. You know, I remember thinking like, this is not good. And I remember dealing with it by drinking that weekend. Obviously, you're not supposed to be drinking 15 or 16, but we all got like... I don't know, to be chipping and get a bottle of vodka or something like that. And everyone else was having a good time. Like, all the lads were drunk. And you know when you're a teenager, you're falling on these people are getting sick. But I got aggressive. And I remember looking at the lads being like, uh, you know, what the, What are you looking at? And I was the only one who behaved that way. And looking back, knowing what I know now, that was a red flag. You know, that was like an allergic reaction to alcohol. Because I've never considered myself an alcoholic because alcohol was never my drug of choice. But I certainly can't drink. I don't drink very well. Alcohol in my system doesn't work very well. So I think, even looking back to that point, alcohol was a crutch for me to deal with emotion that I couldn't deal with. And I did not react well to alcohol because I believe I have some sort of an allergic reaction to it. Um... So I think bringing that up to what you're talking about 10 years ago, um, I wasn't happy from, say, 18 to 23 at all. Maybe 19 to 23. Uh, I'd gotten a job selling cars in Waterford because I didn't know what else to do. I started college at uh, 18 because my mother begged me to. I wanted to move to San Francisco uh, we found out that I had a cousin who worked in TV and movies as a writer, and he ended up creating the show The Good Wife. Wow, I love The Good Wife. Uh, yeah, well, like, he's a distant relative of mine. I, I remember speaking to him, I haven't spoken to him in like 10 years, but I remember trying to get a job off him when I was in my first year of film school, and he just said to me, go and learn your craft, go and experience the business, and come back to me when you have... And that was brilliant. Like, when you think about it, he could have just given me a job and I could have just walked in. And, I, you know, I wouldn't have experienced any of this stuff. But I found out that this guy exists. And I think he'd, he'd kind of written a couple of Disney movies or something like that. And his aunt, Angela, had been in contact with my grandfather, Jerry. And she was like, send him over if he wants to get into the business and he wants to move to America. Send him over. And I was 17 that summer. And I remember my mother crying in the kitchen, being like, please try college for a year be 18 before you move away and I went to college to study business studies at WIT which is what everyone does when they have no idea what they want to do but I did know what I wanted to do and um, yeah so I dropped I saw the office for the first time Ricky Gervais and I dropped out because I was like well this is what I want to do with my life why am I wasting my time with this so got a job simply not being in an office but making making comedy. making comedy that was yeah. that that was like I, I just kind of went well that's kind of what I want to do like that's that's the comedy I, you know you can do this so I got a job selling cars my dad was a car salesman I got a job in the same garage selling cars and you know when you're when I was 18 I, real, I dropped out of college to become a you know to write comedy to make to make something to be an artist or whatever you want to call it but less pretentious than that but then I ended up like in a suit and tie making money for, I'm making money for other people. I, felt, I, I almost felt like a sellout for a couple of years, like in my early 20s. And I was in a relationship that wasn't good. Uh, I don't think either of the two of us were happy. I don't think it did anything for either of the two of us. Uh, How long did that last? Four years. Uh, you know, and I think the unhappiness of that, coupled with being in a job that might, you know, 
it sounded like a Bruce Springsteen song, you know. <laughs> Living in the, a town that I wasn't happy in at the time and being in a relationship I wasn't happy with and being in a job I wasn't happy in, I think that was where, you know, depression again set in for me. Um, and I mean, like, I didn't know what drugs were. I never did drugs at the time. Uh, I drank, but only drank socially, you know. But but again, I uh, looking back, like, and my dad will always say this to me, going on Christmas nights out with the job and stuff like that with a free bar, I'd always be the one in the mess. I'd always be the one making a show of himself. I'd always be the one who went too far. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So that alcohol relationship was always a um, a crutch, I think, and always was negative. You I've, weren't having a good time, really. You were just looking for a bit of a fight, probably. I think so. I don't think I've ever, I was ever fighting people, but it was aggression. Yeah. It was always chest out. Henry Sellers was my nickname from the lads. <laughs> you know the Father Ted episode? We <laughs> made the BBC. Like exactly. Okay. Like, so Henry Sellers <laughs> takes a drink and becomes a different person. That was what I used to do. Yeah, okay. And I think it was. I was just so desperately unhappy with my life that I didn't know where to turn. Um, And I don't want to dwell too much on that relationship because, yeah. you know, I'm sure that person has a different story than I do. Um, and that's the nicest way I can possibly be about it. Um, but I remember going to that person and saying, I think I'm depressed. I think I have depression. Because we didn't know, like it's, it's 2006, 2007, mm-hmm. we didn't know. what. No one spoke about depression then. Even then they didn't. It was a Celtic tiger. Nobody was depressed. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I mean, I had, I, you know, I was making money, but that didn't mean, I didn't know what money was back then. I didn't have a clue because I walked right into a job where I made money from school. So money didn't mean anything to me. So it didn't make me happy. Not that it would have made me happy now. Not that I'd know now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know, and I remember going to that person and saying, listen, I think I have depression. I think I need to be. And I remember the reaction was, that means there's something wrong with you. Oh, Jesus. That means you have a chemical imbalance in your brain. Now, are you telling me you've got a chemical imbalance in your brain? And I remember going, uh, no, I'll shut up so. Now, that's youth and it's immaturity. But that was what happened. Yeah. Not the reaction that's very sympathetic when you're going through that. <laughs> no, and I didn't know in 2006, let's just pick a year out of it that you could go to your doctor and say, do I have depression? Because I was afraid of doctors. Probably yeah. still am now. Were you Googling stuff or? No, because again, I don't think that was a, a thing at the time. I, I, like Googling was becoming a thing, you know, and I had the internet, but I used it to look up wrestling news, Yeah. you know, and Liverpool news and who were Liverpool <laughs> going to sign and who was coming to the WWF, you know? Yeah. I didn't, I didn't Google symptoms because I would have been probably terrified. So before things started to improve and before you got help or were brought in to get help what happened let's go through let's go through the spiral I always remember when I was selling cars that my boss at the time always like they say a foot like a footballer it's certain footballers need to put their have their arm put around them by the coach tell them what a great job they're doing to get them to play I'm like I was always one of those type of salesmen mm. like my boss would always like if I felt on unwan- I'm still the same now by the way um, if if I, I needed to feel wanted, I needed to feel like I was doing a good job, you know. And you're a puppy, pretty much. 
Good boy. A sensitive little soul. And it's the same now with the radio. I need to know. I need to know that my boss thinks I'm doing a good job. It's the same with the wrestling. I need to know that Joe Cabray, the promoter of OTT, thinks I'm good. I need him to think I'm doing a good job because if I feel useless... Or if I feel like I'm useless to somebody else, I'll start feeling useless. And it was the same with the with the selling cars. And I'd go into slumps where I couldn't sell. I'd hide in my office. I'd scribble. I, I always used to have a notepad where I'd scribble ideas for scripts or comedy sketches or jokes. And I'd go into that little world in my... I'd lock the door. Not lock the door, but I'd close the door of the office and someone would come in looking to buy a car. And I wouldn't go ask them, are they okay? I'd scribble in my notebook instead. Mm-hmm. You know, so I needed, I needed him, I needed my boss, to t- I needed my dad, who was also my boss, to tell me I was doing a good job, or else I'd go into these holes. And it was all because I think I had an undiagnosed depression at the time. Mm. So, <clears throat> to fast forward a little bit, the relationship finally ended that I was in. And on one hand, I was so relieved because I felt like my life could begin. Um, because I'd, I felt like I'd missed out on a lot in my early 20s. Like, I wasn't allowed go on holidays with the lads. I wasn't allowed to go on trips like that. And that's my own fault for allowing that to happen. But when you're 19 and you get involved in something like that, you think that's the norm. Mm. You know, you think you're supposed to make your girlfriend happy all the time and do whatever she wants. And that's not the case. And it goes for the same, I'm sure, uh, if it's a female, you know, who is, is doing whatever the other person wants. That's not the right thing to do. You have to have your own... Both life. women saying, you can't go anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's... you know. I, I'm, I, but it, look, listen, there's control in boyfriends. You know, we all know that. What? No. Yeah. No. But I definitely, being the overthinking mastermind that I am, just let it get to me and let the job get to me and let the fact that I wasn't where I wanted to be in life get to me. And uh, by the time the relationship ended and it took another turn that I don't really want to get into, um, you know, I had another betrayal from a friend at the time and I mean I just got into it really that's what it is you know and um, they ended up being together and you know in the middle of that and uh, I took that very very hard because when it broke up that friend had had been there for me and was texting somebody opposite me and I didn't know at the time it was her and uh, I, you know I really 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 started deteriorating um, and uh, I went to a doctor for the first time and spoke to my doctor and she diagnosed me with depression, put me on an antidepressant, which is completely normal, which I would advise to anybody out there. Yeah. That is step one, by the way, you know, because we'll talk about recovery as well. Step one of depression, admit you've got it, go speak to your doctor. And if you need to go on a course of antidepressants, you're not going to be on them for the rest of your life, which we'll also get to. But go on them because they help, help you. Yeah. You know, so I did that uh, and they did help, I suppose. And I went to see a counsellor who was a great help to me at the start to introduce me to meditation, which is something I didn't get back into until very recently. And, um, yeah, so I went on, but I also went on a course of Xanax, which was the beginning of the end. So were you following the, you know, the prescribed milligrams or did you immediately start experimenting or going more? No, I didn't, I didn't know that you could abuse prescription drugs. That's the starting point of my story. And years later, when I started going to meetings, like Narcotics Anonymous meetings and stuff, it was very difficult for me to associate with people who are in there for cocaine addiction, for heroin addiction. And I'm there, well, I'm only here because the, the doctor gave me too many tablets or I'm taking too many tab- tablets you can get from the doctor. There's, there's a, you can easily take the moral high ground there or think you're better than somebody else because you're in there for something you can get off a doctor. That's 
very big mistake. But no, I um, I remember, I remember getting a, getting a Valium from my mother to to go asleep because when I found out everything that had happened, um, because I I had a, I had what I suppose you would call a panic attack, and I'm only twenty three years old at the time. I think it was two thousand and eight, and I felt like I'd lived an adult's life. You know, I'd worked a full-time job with very full-time money, company cars, company phones, being able to buy a house, doing all these kind of things in my early 20s that people shouldn't be doing till their 30s. So I felt like an old man at 23, you know, and, um, but I remember liking the feeling and I remember being in work and telling a, a workmate that I'd taken one of these things for the first time because I, I was so anti-drugs that when some of my friends started smoking hash at 16, I stopped hanging around with them because I felt like, geez, you're druggies. <laughs> you know, that's how anti-drug I was. And um, I remember telling my workmate about the Valentine and he went, oh, you know, one of the lads gave me, uh, like, hit the end of his box or whatever you call it, of Valium because he wasn't using them because I've got a bad back. Would you like me to give them to you? And I went, yeah, sure, because they're helping me sleep. Sure. But I didn't know that was wrong. I just, you know, because again, a doctor gave them to you. So how can it be wrong? Yes. But then when I knew I had them, as well as the Xanax I'd been prescribed, because again, I didn't know Valium and Xanax were the same thing. I didn't know. I was ignorant towards it. But I had this little vial, or what do you call it? Like a little box or a little tube of Valium. But I knew well enough to hide it in my sock drawer. Mm. Do you know what I mean? So I was claiming ignorance, but I never told my mother and father that I had them. Mm-hmm. I knew to hide them in my sock drawer, mm-hmm. you know? Cute enough. But then I'd take them at one o'clock in the day because I knew I'd get a buzz. You know, but at the same time, I'd never taken drugs, you know. The extent of my problems had only ever been, oh, I drank too much and made a show of myself. I drank too much and started a fight with somebody. I drank too much and got mouthy with somebody. I had to apologize. There was no drugs before that. Never. Yeah. Never. Um, No, never. Never so much as a prescription pill until the Valium came into play. And then, uh, I suppose, I moved to New York that January. I, like, the, the breakup and the betrayal, as I'll call it, came in September of 20, 2008. And between t- that and January of 2009, I quit my job, decided to move to New York, applied for film school, travelled to New York to see the film school, signed all the documents, and moved to New York within the four months of all that happening. Looking back, that was possibly not the best choice but I obviously I'm one of these people who would never change anything that I've ever done because I wouldn't be where I am now if I if I could gotcha but I wasn't mentally ready after everything I'd been through to move countries and certainly not to move to New York City um your first time there was it no I I actually the the irony was that I'd gone every every Christmas on holidays for the previous four or five years and had fallen in love. And I remember going there with my parents. The Celtic Tiger was still in full swing. I was 19. My dad had, had booked us a holiday for me, my mom, my dad and my sister to all go to New York. My mom and dad had been there, but we never had. And I, I remember being in the taxi coming from JFK into the city for the first time. And I felt a feeling like I'd never felt before and only ever since when I'd been in New York. And I felt like belonging. 
it felt like I was in the right place for the first time in my life because I'd never felt at home in Waterford. I love Waterford. I love it so much. I'm so proud of being a Waterford man. And anyone who knows me will know that. If you see me in the wrestling, I wear a blue and white sparkly jacket to represent that. I'll always be so... My accent is still Waterford. You can hear it. Yep. But I never felt at home. I never felt right. It never felt... I don't know how to describe it to you. In my stomach, it never felt like, right. But when I was driving in from New York, from JFK into the city at 19, I felt at home. It felt like I'd spiritually belonged there. And I remember saying, I'll live here someday. Obviously, I ended up living there in 2009 in January. Mm -hmm. It was too early. It was way too early. Okay. So, you're going through feeling, okay... I know I need to be creative. I know that's in me. Yeah. And I have to do something about it. And you're also feeling like, I don't know where I am in myself and maybe don't feel enough, as we say. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, not feeling enough is often apparently tends to be the thing that drives us to doing extreme things that aren't good for us. So let's fast forward then to... When you actually did move to New York. Yeah. So, yeah, I, 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 I definitely, I don't know if it's, I didn't feel enough. I felt like a, a fraud. I felt like I'd been living a lie for four or five years because I, I had felt all this creativity and I was writing in my fucking office, you know, and trying to create all these things. And I tried to enroll in a couple of creative writing courses. And I remember they all kept getting knocked. Like not enough people were signing up and it'd be cancelled. I remember my mother saying to me, none of these are the right time. It will come. The, t- the right time will come. But I've been, I was wearing a suit for four, five years. I was still a kid, you know, and I was, I, I was just, I wasn't, I was living a lie. I was, it wasn't me. And when I moved to New York, on that side of things, I just hit the ground running. I felt when I remember the first day in film school and I went to study screenwriting because my my thought process was first of all I was actually too shy to tell people I wanted to be an actor like who was I to say I was going to be an actor Tony Kelly from Waterford how could I go in and say to my mother and father I'm going to be an actor mm-hmm. when I'd never done that before you know because when I was growing up I was playing soccer because that's what you were supposed to do no I love soccer I love it like I said I'm a season ticket holder for Liverpool still love it but I, I never knew you could be both I never knew you could go to the gym and also be a creative because you couldn't. Yeah. You know, I could. I should have enrolled in Red Kettle in Waterford when I was a kid, but I didn't have the balls to, to own up and say, hey, I want to be a creative. I couldn't do it. So my other thought process was I'd be a screenwriter because if I can write my own work, I'll always be able to create my own work, even if the work doesn't pay. Yeah. You know, that was my thought process. And with the screenwriting course you could minor in acting. There was an acting class. So that was my foot in the door as well. I could discover if I was good at acting while also getting the qualification in the writing. So I hit the ground running creatively. The the ideas were there. I started writing my screenplay before I even got to school. Now, when they found that out, they were like, stop writing your screenplay because you don't know what you're doing. And over, I did an intensive degree, which was a two-year degree over one year. So it was a two-year course, all fit into one year. So it was intense. We did write two two original screenplays, an original TV play, like a telescript, uh, a spec script for an existing TV show, a short film, and then you had to go back and rewrite one of your screenplays. Jesus. 
So it was a lot, you know, but that was great. But I f- still found the time for my life to fall apart <laughs> <laughs> in between all that. Um, yeah, so I suppose what you're really asking me is about the, the, how I got into the... You met a girl. <laughs> again. Uh, it, yeah, it would be easy for me to blame somebody else though, you know, because I did meet a girl, but I'd also started experimenting a little bit with drugs when I was there. I tried cocaine for the first time. Wouldn't be my drug of choice. I mean, it's a lot of people's drug of choice. It's very Moorish. We all know that. But eh. Some good comedy material out of your cocaine days. I did, which, <laughs> yeah, anyone who's seen me alive knows that story. I uh, got into a bit of trouble straight away, um, NYPD-wise, which, you know, I think we'll, you know, it, that's out there. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's already in the... It's already in the, the world. <laughs> but yeah, I uh, got into a bit of trouble straight away with that and thankfully got out of trouble with that. You would think that would have been a red flag for me and a warning. It just, it didn't do anything, you know. Uh, but again, I went off with, um, I'd been diagnosed obviously with depression and I was on an antidepressant and the Xanax. But my doctor, knowing that I was gone away for nine months at least, gave me nine months worth of my prescription for my antidepressant and my and my Xanax. Oh dear. Which was a mistake <laughs> yeah. on her part. Uh, yeah. You know, but again, it's easy to blame other people. So I would take the Xanax quite often to lose myself because um, when you're away, I was away for the first time from from home. I was scared. I didn't want to pretend I was scared. Didn't want to even probably didn't probably want to let on to myself that I was scared in this new, not only in a new country but in New York City. You know, very scary. Very scary. Living in a dorm with another guy, which was just a room with another guy. Uh, that poor guy didn't drink, didn't smoke, didn't do drugs and had to live with me for the year. He was terrified, I'd say. Actually, I know he was. Mark became a really good friend of mine. Yeah, so I, I was, I met a girl and uh, now she wasn't the first person to say this to me, but she said, you know, do you guys, do you do drugs? And I said, no, I don't. I like to drink because I'm Irish, you know, and and I just like to drink. But I don't. I said, I've been taking Valium and Xanax quite a bit, though, and they're unreal. Are they drugs? <laughs> you know? I was like, oh, no, no, we've got better stuff than that here. Oh. And that was my, I suppose, my doorway into the world of opioids in America, which is a, a big thing you'll, you'll read about in the news now, which is kind of like Vicodin, Percocet, Oxycontin, Soma, um, Zaboxin, those kind of pills and oxycontin is extremely potent. Yeah, oxycontin. I I think that is a. It's an opioid. I th- I, they call it hillbilly heroin. I think, or at least they used to, which I think tells you all you need to know about <laughs> about that. But again, Emily, it's very easy to to fall into the trap because a doctor can give you this. It's so easy to convince yourself. I can get these from a doctor. I can get these from a chemist with a little note. So how can they be? They're not wrong. Now, all these fellas on the streets that are doing these other... Oh, God, that's terrible. <laughs> but how can I be wrong for... T- you know? And then... like, But when, I think, for me, anyway, it was a hugely slippery slope because you can pop them like Smarties. Yeah. You know? I remember sitting in class one time and that's when it started... Like, I, I should have known it was getting bad at this age because I was bringing strips of Xanax to class with me. Okay. And I'd be in the middle of class and I'd lean over as if I'm getting a pen out of my bag. And take two Xanax. 
you know, and then you start telling yourself, oh, these aren't working yet, I'll take two more. You know, and then all of a sudden you've taken 10 Xanax in about 20 minutes and you are just lost. You're not there. You know, and that unfortunately is the story of about two years of my life. I was lost, I wasn't there. I was there in body. I, I I had no idea what I was doing and I can't remember a lot of it. You don't remember a lot of this? A lot of it, yeah. Um, and, you know, that's that's fine for a while, but when you're mixing that with alcohol as well, which is what I was doing and what I ended up certainly doing, uh, it's scary. You know, and then I got into stand-up uh, from being in film school, which was obviously a, such a blessing for me because stand-up comedy... <laughs> kind of ruined my life and saved my life. Oh, it didn't ruin my life. It, it was, it was the creative out, output I was looking for. Mm-hmm. It was what it was what gave me my voice as a performer. You know, and I I think without discovering stand up that first year in New York, I wouldn't have done any of the things I've done. Yeah. It was always a name of mine to be a stand up comedian. I just never knew how. But then the flip side of that is first year in New York, a lot of my projects that I pitched to the producing team because we were teamed up with the producers as screenwriters. We could pitch them shorts and they'd get them made. A lot of my ideas got picked up. Uh, this this legendary comedy producer, Steve Rosenfield, approached me to be a comedian after seeing my short that I made. Mm-hmm. And I was I was getting the big head. Yeah. You know, I was an Irish guy in New York. You know, I was meeting girls a lot. I had a girlfriend. I was meeting girls. You know what I'm trying to say? I was this new thing. I was on stage on the Broadway Comedy Club. I was I was in Gotham Comedy on the main stage. I was getting the big head, and I was like, and I was look, I was watching like was a massive Russell Brand was such an influence on me at the time, but I wasn't influenced by his sobriety. I was I was looking at oh well he destroyed himself to build himself back up. Sure, I'll do the same thing. Oh no! <laughs> but never thinking that he almost died. Yeah. That I can die. You know, I was looking at all the Bill Hicks talking about taking magic mushrooms, but I wasn't taking magic mushrooms to open my mind. I was taking copious amounts of opioids, you know, mm-hmm. but but using all that as a crutch, you know, because then stand up became a crutch. Well, I'm a comedian. I'm supposed to be depressed all the time. Yeah. I'm supposed to loathe myself and other people, <laughs> you know, I'm supposed to allow myself go into this deep, dark hole. Yeah, I wasn't. You're not. You know, it was all an excuse. I wasn't dealing with what really was going on, which was whatever, I don't know, probably stuff from childhood, probably stuff from my, like I was bullied in school, which is something I never speak about now. It's something like I hear like my sister talking about like, oh, you know, uh, bullying in school is because we've got, I've got a nephew, she's got, you know, he's my nephew, Nathan, he's my fucking world. Like, but, and I think like, I never acknowledge that I was bullied in school. You know, in primary school and up until my junior, I hated school up until my junior start because I was bullied. You know, I was probably a year younger than the rest of the lads and maybe not as boisterous as the rest of them were and kind of sunk into myself. And I was a, I was a, I was a wrestling fan and that wasn't the coolest thing to be. Okay. And then I got into transition year and I kind of had the year to catch up with people who were maybe more my age. I was, I was, a, I shouldn't have started school when I did. I was probably a year too young, but I feel like maybe that was something that was inside me that I'd never spoken about, that I'd been bullied for years in school and just moved on because all of a sudden I was able to step up to the banter in school or, you know. You were able to step up, but you hadn't dealt with Hadn't dealt with any of it. Yeah. Hadn't dealt with any of it before. And I think I carried a lot of that because that's a rejection. 
as well you know yeah. you're being rejected by your peers I suppose at such an early age and oh like I, I think a lot of that was you know was entrenched in me and then there, that betrayal as a teenager and that betrayal as a, in my early 20s from the girl and from my friend and I, I think there was a lot of self-medicating going on and guys back then didn't really talk about stuff at all <laughs> I think guys still today don't talk about it yeah yeah now we're getting better that's what this podcast is about but where, you know, at the time we certainly didn't talk about him. But I think there was a lot of that. You know, I was carrying stuff like that that I never never dealt with. Uh, the idea of feeling like I sold myself out and, uh, you know, re- rejections from relationships and stuff like that that I should have dealt with. But it's easy to say that now in 2019. Yeah, you were on. young. You didn't know. And I, yeah, I think it was all self-medicating, Emily. You know, any of the drinking I was doing, any of the pills I was doing and... You know, being in a relationship over there with somebody who was also doing the same thing didn't help, but it's by no means her fault. I had, I could have walked away day one, but I loved it at the time. I loved it. So tell us about like an average day there when you were at your worst time, let's say. What were you thinking? Okay, my, uh, my worst was 2010, definitely. Um that was more, and this is going to be the hardest to talk about because people who I know are going to listen to this and my family are hopefully not going to listen to this but probably will and it's actually I can feel it in my stomach now having to admit this and, and this is like but this is kind of what I suppose this is what I've signed up for I want other people to talk about it so I have to um, yeah, fair play. At, at the beginning of 2010 and leading into April of 2010 there was a kind of a cocktail that I would take most nights and this is not including whatever I take during the day where I would take like a, a cocktail of Vicodin, Percocet, Valium, Xanax, Oxy and a Soma I think as well. So that's six or seven different prescription drugs and I would drink pretty much every night on top of all that. And my girlfriend at the time, uh, we spoke years later about this when we kind of re, kind of made peace I suppose. Um. I didn't know I was doing it. I, I assume she did. But I suppose I never told her. You know, she's just like, well, I thought we would do that sometimes together. But yeah. she had no idea that when she was at work, I would do it. Like sometimes I'd, I'd go, I'd pick you up from work. And when I turn up, my eyes would be that droopy, okay. y xanax glare, glint. Like I wasn't there. You could see it in my eyes. Like like sometimes she'd be like, You're, what do you have to do that for? Then she'd know. But there was other times where she would go to bed and I'd stay up all night. Oh, well, not all night, but... You know, she'd have school the next morning or, you know, and I, I'd be, my job at the time was I was a comic or I was I was doing my performance arts diploma the second year I was in New York at the American Comedy Institute. So all my classes were at night. So I had nothing. So you could get away with this. Nothing to do during the day. Yeah. But then I started going to the classes on on stuff and, you know, and I remember um, everybody was probably afraid of me, to be honest, because I was aggressive because... I was angry at life, I was unhappy, and I was on drugs, even though in my mind they weren't drugs because they were you could get them from a doctor. Yeah. They're drugs. Yeah. So like I was not a pleasant person to be around for sure in a relationship or friendship or in class with, like doing improv with and being aggressive in an improv class. Because I wasn't getting what I wanted from somebody else. Mm-hmm. Like that's not how you do improv. Anyone out there was an improv person or in an acting class and being on something and I remember getting a compliment from one of my acting teachers we were doing a scene from Tootsie 
right? The, <laughs> the Dustin Hoffman movie. And I was after taking Oxy in class and I was drinking in the bar underneath the class in between people's scenes. And I had like an itch from taking the Oxy and it was in the scene. And I remember my acting teacher giving me a a round of applause going, that's acting. Look at the choice he's made. I don't know what it is that you're doing with this kind of itch. You're just so not comfortable in your body. And it's just, I never would have thought to do that in the scene. And I went, thanks very much. I was off my face. You know? So when when you were taking it and, and say she went to bed, mm. would you be up all night? Would you be listening to music? Would you be writing? Would you be yeah. going back through years and beating yourself up about stuff? Yeah, I'd be doing all of that. But no, and to be honest with you, Emily, it's hard to remember because mm. I don't really, it's, it's like flashes. You know, like when you've dreamt and you wake up from a dream the next day and you get flashes of what the dream were. That's what it feels like. I can see myself sitting on that sofa watching TV no idea what I've been watching and I used to have my laptop and I'd listen to I was listening to a lot of Lou Reed at the time I remember that because I actually met Lou Reed in the middle of it all and depressing music like that you know and and indulging the whole thing not wanting to do anything about it but indulging it of course I'm listening to Lou Reed of course I'm listening to all this depressing music and, and of course I'm taking drugs drinking vodka or of course I'm taking pills and, and drinking vodka I'm so dark and broody and I'm a comic and I'm a writer and, and, uh, and this is what all the people who I love used to do. Tortured artists. Yeah, but that's such pretentious bullshit yeah. and it's a shield to hide behind because nobody needs to go through that because I'm going to tell you for, for sure that I've done way better things since I got... Oh, it's not even like... I'm laughing. I'm, like The stuff I've done since I've gotten clean wouldn't stand up to any of the bullshit that I was trying to do when I was starting off taking all that stuff. It was just not real. It was all an excuse, you know? So I would I would take all those things when, you know, when she would go to bed and that's a lethal combination because you're taking a lot of downers, as they're called, and the soma in amongst all that is a muscle relaxer. Your heart is a muscle. Um, so as that relationship was kind of winding down as well, I was not handling that very well because I, I think I was reflecting on all the bad choices I'd made. You know, um, I should have been celebrating the fact that I was in New York and had all these opportunities at my feet. You know, I'd done a couple of small little things acting wise, did an indie movie and, you know, I was getting opportunities, like I was doing, I was getting asked to open for people. I was being a regular at the Broadway Comedy Club, but wasn't, I wasn't happy enough. I was so depressed that I was self-medicating myself and wasn't enjoying or soaking up what I should have had. I ended up getting barred from the New York com- or from the Broadway Comedy Club for being high and starting a fight with a bouncer. Yeah. Now I was standing up for my friend, a, a female comic at the time. I was. I remember standing up for her because the guy was very rude. But I mean, like you can be a hero in a different way <laughs> instead of being high and starting a fight with a bouncer. You know, yeah. I started a fight with an audience member one night. You know, because it was something stupid, and eventually they just had enough. Like here's this kid who's not even a year in the business. And he's causing this much trouble. It's not worth it. Mm-hmm. You know, go take a break for yourself, kid, basically. Yeah. Didn't stop. You know, and um, 1st of April 2010, I um, I suppose you, I had an overdose is what you could call it. Two overdoses? Yeah, in the one day. So tell us uh, about that day. Oh, um, I don't remember. That's the truth. I don't remember what happened. Were I rem- you taking that level of cocktail, you know, leading up to that? 
yeah, that was, I don't know how many weeks that was leading up that I was doing that, but there, there was definitely one particular night where I, had, I, I kept a journal at the time as well, which I've since disposed of because it was something that I used to read to remind myself of how far I'd come. But then I actually felt like having it in my room was like a real dark energy that I didn't need in my life anymore. Mm-hmm. So I got rid of it back in January. But I, like if I read back on that, like which I used to, it's it's really scary. It's really dark. And it's, it's uh, I wasn't in a good place in any aspect of my life. Creative, creative wise, relationship wise, mental health wise. But it all the reason why I'm, I'm talking about it is because this all... Sp- stemmed from not dealing with my mental health sure this was all self-medicating this was all stuff that i was trying to run away from the fact that there wasn't something right in my mind in my brain uh so all i all i know is that my girlfriend at the time arrived home and found me on the floor and the next thing i knew i woke up in an ambulance on the on the way to um i think it was st luke's hospital in, in new york where they were treating me for an overdose and they Look, I don't want to, I don't know whether I would have lived or died if she hadn't come home. I don't I don't want to speculate on that. <laughs> I mean, if I probably wanted to speculate on it, it probably wouldn't be too hard. Uh, and then I remember waking up and going, no, I don't want to be here. I can't afford to be here because of the mental health service. And I walked back and this is all just piecing together stuff that I've been told by her because I don't know. I walked home shirtless with a leather jacket on oh my god <laughs> in March weather in oh well April now start of April weather in New York and uh, proceeded to take it to just start taking tablets again and then um, had to be take I wouldn't go in an ambulance the next time I don't know why um, I wouldn't go in an ambulance the next time so the, the police had to take me to, to hospital and they took me to Bellevue which is, a, anyone who watches Law and Order SVU <laughs> <laughs> will know that's the mental hospital in in New York. And this is something I just don't deal with in my life. I just don't acknowledge that this was the thing that I did because it's so, fa- it's like 10 years ago, but it's so far removed from the person I am now. But I remember waking up in there, coming, getting sober or clean or whatever it was and going, oh no, this is where I am. This is what I've just done. And now I'm in my right mind again going, this is a bit far, Tony. This is a bit far, you know? And I think I could be getting my dates wrong, but for something is telling me it was Good Friday. Maybe we had an early Easter that year. And uh, I needed to get out of there and fast because you can imagine how scary it was in there. Were you in your own room or no? I had a room, as far as I remember, because again, this is cloudy. Uh, but... Um, it was a kind of a communal area. But look, I got out of there. Uh, thankfully, they let me out. But the problem was that when I got out, my dad was in New York waiting for me. Because um, my girlfriend had to ring my parents to tell her because she didn't know if I was going to be alive, dead. And looking back on that now, the shame of that right now, because I didn't, I didn't even realize the fact that my dad was on a plane for seven hours not knowing whether I was going to be alive or dead when he got to New York. That was how selfish I was. That was... You know, because there was addiction there as well. Mm-hmm. You know, I can put that off as much as I want and dance around it and say, oh, I was self-medicating, it was mental health. You know, I was addicted as well. Yeah. And one of the things with addiction is selfishness. I was so selfish that it took me years to realise what my parents must have been through that night. You know? Yeah. Uh, so look, to, to fast forward, this was a little bit. Um, I was left for a while in New York for about a month, but I, I, I slipped back into it again. I, st- I started doing it again. 
and my uncle Billy who was so 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 close to me and obviously we lost him a couple of years ago and that was very difficult he came and had a, had a talk with me and I didn't listen you know and I I don't know whether he told my dad I look knock this on the head or what it was but my dad had to fly back over to New York again that month and just bring me home yeah just bring me home because I was going to die over that were I, you reluctant to go home or? yeah initially I was really really reluctant because I felt like I, I'd come back as a failure I went to New York to be a success and I made a I made a bollocks of it really, you know, by getting involved in all these prescription drugs. And that was kind of more frustrating because I didn't even like for me it was like, ah, you went over and you got and you got you started taking them tablets and get off the dock. You didn't even do hardcore drugs. You know that kind of way that was the, the way I looked at it. But then when I got home I started resenting people for making me come home. I started resenting my mother for making me come home. I started resenting my father for making me come home. And I couldn't get Oxys, Vicodin, Percocet, I couldn't get those things at home I could only get Valium yeah. and I was buying it off the street because my doctor wouldn't give it to me because she knew what trouble I'd gotten into you know um, put me on the no prescriptions list it's on my file now I can't yeah. get prescribed Valium or Xanax now which is fantastic okay. but it's in my file do not prescribe because I was abusing them so I was buying them off the street now to this day if you ask me who I was buying them off the street I don't know I don't remember I just know I was getting them and it got it got out of hand because I was taking upwards of probably 30 or 40 D10 Valiums a day when I, when I had them. This wasn't a constant thing every yeah. day because I'd be dead. Yeah. But it was a lot. It was most weeks, most days of the week. And the days where I wasn't taking them, I'd taken so many that I was living in that cloud, that high, that, you know, whatever you want to call it. And it got to the stage where I crashed my car. I don't know to this day whether I was on something whether I wasn't on something. All I know is I passed a breathalyzer, so I wasn't, because I've never drink drive. But I thought I wasn't my thing. Crashed my car. I don't know if I fell asleep at the wheel. I don't know if I was changing a CD. I don't know what happened. Crashed my car into a green light outside the hospital in Waterford. Flipped the car. Car landed on its side. And I somehow came out with only a scratch on my finger. Don't remember anything about anything else. All I know is the next night I came home from apparently doing a gig. <laughs> yeah. Don't know how that went. Apparently not good. <laughs> Never asked back to that venue again, funnily <laughs> enough. And my parents were sitting in the house and they had just been on a cruise that week. So apparently the cruise had to dock so they could fly home to deal with me. Oh, and they gave me the ultim ultimatum of, uh, you're not welcome here anymore unless you get sorted out. And that had never happened in my life because we're such a close family. So I wouldn't go to Asheree or treatment because I was afraid. I was 25. Mm -hmm. I was terrified about being locked up somewhere for 90 days. Now looking back, should have went to treatment. Absolutely should have went, but didn't. And uh, I agreed to get kind of like a psychiatric evaluation to see what was going on. So my, my, my dad's friends were psychiatric nurses and I went to them mm -hmm. and they got me an appointment to see a psychologist in the hospital in Waterford in the psych ward. And he diagnosed me as bipolar in 2010. Now... <sighs> I'm not bipolar and I got a, I got misdiagnosed at the time and when I when I found out in 2016 after six years of being on lithium which is extremely hard on your body and your organs and your everything I was so angry that I've been misdiagnosed and been on lithium which was crippling my body for six years I was like how dare they misdiagnose me but then I then I kind of sat back and took a look and I went Tony you were taking so many 
prescription drugs, prescription pills at the time, that your brain was giving the false narrative of manic episodes to do with bipolar disorder that you got diagnosed. Okay. That's how fucked up I'd gotten myself. Not the doctor's fault. That was Tony Kelly's fault. You know what I mean? So I I took the diagnosis and was like, okay, now I have now I have a label. I'm bipolar. Now I have a crutch. Now I, I, I accepted all that and went on the lithium and kind of to and froed with sobriety for the next nine months or so. Tried it, but was drinking pints here or there on the sly, like as if I was 16 again and didn't want my parents to know I was drinking. Do you know what I mean? How did you feel on lithium? It was the hardest thing I've ever put my body through. The headaches for the first couple of weeks were horrible. The, the queasiness, the blood tests every six weeks to monitor thyroid function and liver function. I, it was agony. It was horrible. It's, you know, at, at the time. But when I got used to it, it leveled out. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, when I got used to it, it was fine. There was no issue. It was the first couple of months or weeks getting used to it. Fine. But like, I needed to be on lithium. Yeah. I wasn't right in the head. Now, it was because of a self-inflicted thing. But I will always look back and say that, that I needed to be on some sort of antidepressant. Lithium put me on a straight and narrow. Now, I did have a couple of, you know, nights of heavy drinking that shouldn't have happened. And then I took a job as a musician in Ayanapa in in the summer of 2011. (laughs) And I needed the money. It was a lot of money that I didn't have. I wasn't working here. And I was moving to Toronto that September and I needed the money. And that gave me the money I needed. But the night I got there... The owner of the bar was a Cypriot guy called Lucas. And he said to me, you know, every summer, my musician has a drink with me to toast the season. (laughs) And I said, Lucas, I'm not disrespecting you or your bar, but you don't want me to have a drink, man. You just don't want it to happen because, you know, I'm I'm abstaining. And he said, "Uh, so you're going to come here to my country and my bar and insult me. And we had a proper shouting match. (laughs) He was like, you're going to insult me. I was like, no, I'm not insulting you. And it went back and forth. And like, first you know, night. My first night. So I went, you know what? If that's what you want, that's what we'll do. So I went and I started drinking. And the next day he brought me to the doctor to get some stuff for my throat to allow me to sing every night for three months. And the doctor said to me, he said, uh, friends don't need prescriptions here. Is there anything I can give you that you might like? Oh, God. Yeah. And I said me being trying to be coy about it I said uh, what, what would you mean like what, what could I possibly want like do you mean like antidepressants well maybe he said but uh, you know something anything anything you can think of that might need a prescription at home you don't need here and I said but I don't know what you mean I wanted him to say it you know and he goes I don't know well maybe you know this is a party destination you might meet a lot of women you're a musician maybe you might like some Viagra and I said uh I'm 25, I don't think I'll need it. He goes, I don't say you need it, but you might like it. And I said, no, no, I'm okay for that. And then I just said to him, what about Valium? He said, oh, you like Valium? I said, I do. He said, uh, will, will 100 be okay to start you off? 100. Meaning 100 a day? No, 100 Valium he was going to just give me to start, start me off for the summer. Okay. <sighs> Within about three days, they were all gone. Oh, God. And I was drinking vodka straight again. And I collapsed on the stage a couple of nights into the run and I was done. He was there, you're done. 
somehow I got a second chance. And I think it was the 4th of July. And I kind of went, okay. I recognised in myself that it was the same slip again. And just cut it out. And, and legitimately did cut. Other than I drank one night in Toronto. Which is, I have to admit now, which I never admitted before. <laughs> I drank one night in Toronto in 2011. But other than that, I did stay sober for about two years after that. But I wasn't happy, Emily. I was so, so angry at the world. So, I was depressed, even though I was on the lithium. I was depressed, I was angry, I was frustrated. You know, I don't know whether I was at myself. It was all the stuff, I, unresolved stuff that I still hadn't dealt with. Mm-hmm. I should have been going to a meeting. I should have went to AA, should have went to NA, 12 step, should have done it all. But I thought I was too good for that. I thought I could do it all on my own and nobody can do it on their own. I don't care who you are. You can't do it on your own. So there's, a, there's an expression in alcoholism, which I, it's like a dry drunk, where somebody is an alcoholic but doesn't deal with the issue of, of the underlying issue and is angry and is essentially still behaving like an alcoholic just without the drink. And that's what I was for about two years. Uh, yeah. It's, I, I just wasn't pleasant to be around. And I feel for the lads who probably lived with me in Toronto and had to deal with it. And, you know, I just was... And I, I put it down to the, the stand-up thing again. Oh, well, I'm a sarcastic bastard. Of course I am. That's what I do. And I put it all into me act. <laughs> bullshit. Absolute bullshit. And I cop out. You know? And you were doing it off stage too. You were being like... Yeah, and, and using it all as an excuse. Well, of course I'm like this, but you're not... No, I'm a comedian. So you might as well have been drinking. It's dangerous to say, but yeah, well an angry been, dry yeah, as opposed to an angry drunk. Might as well have been using and drinking. Not that I'm encouraging it on this no, of course not. podcast. No, but like I might as well have been. And to be honest with you, there are some days where I go, oh, I wish I'd been drinking. And you, like that's how weird, that's how the mind goes. Yeah. Like I know what I would have done, but sometimes I go, oh, I could have been, I could have just been doing it for the two years, which is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And it's sick. But there's some days where I go, I should have indulged more. <laughs> Ridiculous. Stupid. And then... But it's a normal feeling to have, you know, the world is pushing alcohol at us all the time. Mm-hmm. And supposedly we're all having a great time. Yeah, well, I don't mean alcohol. I mean, I mean the prescription yeah. pills. Yeah. So I was two years, as I said to you, in that mode. And I look back and, you know, you get the Facebook memories of the statuses and stuff you put up. You can, it's, it's pouring out of the text on Facebook how angry I was, how sad I was, how lonely I was, how depressed I was. And I was going to like a couple of, like, actually, do you know what? I'd actually stopped because of the bipolar diagnosis. I was technically an outpatient of the psych ward in, in Waterford Regional Hospital. And I'd stopped going to the checkups. I'd stopped. So like I had, I had somebody to talk to every couple of weeks. Now I was living in Toronto for a while in New York, so I couldn't. But when I got back, say, in 2013, when I was back living in Ireland, I didn't go. I had free psychiatric care under that program and just didn't go and talk. I, I wallowed, sat in my room. I was in a relationship. It was miserable. She was miserable, the poor girl. You know, I created the hurler. The hurler came from it. The one good thing about that time in my life, 2013, 2000, at that time, was the hurler. Tell us briefly about the the hurler so the hurler is a web series that I did in 2013 about this hurler called Gar Campion it's a mockumentary made for free literally for free I'd come back from living in New York for all those years in Canada and was now in Ireland and 
couldn't go anywhere else and I was very sad about that. And I'd heard about web series in America. Nobody had... I don't, I'm going to go out on the limb and say nobody done one here. I certainly hadn't seen it if they had. And I said, I knew a kid who had a camera in Waterford. I was like, do you want to make a, this web series? He was like, yeah. And I said, let's do it as a mockumentary because that way the terrible production values won't matter. It's <laughs> because it looked like it's a documentary. And uh, made that. And a couple of years later, which is ironically when I was in full sobriety, the, the actual rewards of that came to me after I got sober. Not during but afterwards mm-hmm. I won all the awards and you know took me to Hollywood and it gave, like the horror and, and Gahar gave me everything that I have now everything that I have now came from him which is and he came from he came from the darkness at that time mm-hmm. yeah you know which is <laughs> that's ironic I suppose but so what happened was then that summer I decided I was allowed to have a drink again <laughs> yep because drugs were the problem Prescription drugs are the problem. Alcohol, I'm not an alcoholic. I can, now, I'm just going to preface this by saying that what the message of NA is, is that alcohol is a drug the same way that any other drug is a drug. So if you're going to abstain from drugs, you abstain from alcohol. Don't fall into that trap of I can have a drink, I'm not going, I'm not using Coke anymore, I'm going to use heroin. Because it's the same thing. Do you know what I mean? That That was the analogy that was put to me, Emily. Best advice I ever got. So I had a shandy at my friend's 30th on the 4th of July, which seems to be a date that's cropping up a lot, 4th of July 2013, I had a shandy at my friend's 30th and patted my back on myself on the back so much for being able to handle having one shandy that then I had three pints of full beer <laughs> at my own birthday. And by November of that year, I was on my knees again, drinking up in my room when no one knew and taking Valium that I was buying off the streets in those couple of months that all came from one shandy. I was on my knees again. November 23rd, 2013. I went I went to town in Waterford, full of Valium. Insulted everybody I met, whether I liked them or didn't, friends of mine. In that haze that I haven't felt since that night, thank God. Fell out with people that night that I had to apologise to since. One, one relationship of which never really recovered. And uh, the next day I woke up and just thought, I can't do this anymore. I can't do it again and I can't do it anymore. And I went down and I had to tell my parents that again, after all this time, I was back taking the prescription drugs. My mother knew, because she's my mother, she knew. I remember my dad got angry because that's what men do. That's what we do. We get angry first and then we deal with the emotion. And he said, well, you know what the deal was, pal? If you ever went back on him, you're out. (laughs) And I said, uh, I'm going to go to a meeting tonight. And I rang a friend of mine and I said, listen, I'm after falling back out there. Mm. I'm taking Valium again and I can't remember the last couple of weeks. And I can't remember the phone call. I just know I made it. To this day, I can't remember it. And I went to my first meeting that night. That was November 24th, 2013. And thankfully, touch wood, I've been clean and sober ever since. Wow. Yeah. That's so impressive. Yeah, uh, it's it's not meant to be impressive. It's not a pat in the back for me. It's the fact that we started this podcast by listing all the things that I've done and have going on and didn't even mention the stuff that I have that I can't talk about, which I'm so proud of. I wouldn't have any of that stuff without making that call and going to that meeting. I asked for help because if I had looked up the meeting on my own, I wouldn't have went. 
I made the phone call. I said I needed help because I needed help. I needed it. And I got it. How long did you go to meetings for? Uh, I haven't been to a meeting since last year, which is not right and not good. And that's my own cross to bear. You know, it is. I Now, I've, I've found my own way of dealing with my own recovery and it's through meditation and... And so I actually got I actually got hypnotized in 2017 for a fear of flying that I developed. Um, my uncle Billy, who I mentioned earlier, uh, was such a major part of my life, and he took his own life in 2016. And me and my dad found him in the house, and that was the biggest test of my sobriety because um, I remember standing out in his back garden after we'd found him, and just thinking like. Here's my excuse. Now I can use again. And no one can say anything to me. Yeah. And my mother came up to me and my nannies that night when we were all there and just pulled me outside the door and she said to me, Tony, don't let this be what breaks the hard work you've done because Billy wouldn't have wanted that. And that saved me. That stopped me from doing anything stupid. Because she's right. And she was right. But uh, I developed a fear of flying and I'm not sure if it was from experiencing death so first hand. But I started having this recurring dream that I was on an aeroplane and I couldn't stay in the air. I was never dying in the plane crash, but I couldn't stay in the air. And I started being terrified on airplanes because I didn't know how the plane was staying in the air. And I did a film called Writing Home in 2017 where I was the lead. And, and, and I mean, like to be the lead actor in a movie, I don't care how big or small it is, a feature film, such an honour as, as an actor it's, it's the biggest honour you can get you did a great job and thank it's you. a great film thank you I'm very, I'm very very proud of it but to be to be entrusted in carrying somebody's film it's the biggest honour you can be given but we're supposed to I was supposed to go to Luxembourg to represent the film and be the guest of honour at a film festival over in Luxembourg and I got off the plane on Dublin airport on the tarmac had a freak out I was on the on the tarmac on this little propeller engine plane terrified and I turned to the woman next to me and I said, we're all going to die. <laughs> and she said, would you like a Valium to calm down? No. <laughs> and I said, yes, I would. And I ordered a whiskey. And then something came over me and I went, think about where you are in your life. You're on a plane, the lead in a movie, about to fly to a, a screening of it in Luxembourg as the guest of honour. And you want to throw that all away for this fear. Get off the plane. So I got off the plane. And I rang a hypnotherapist called Richard Burke in Waterford. He hypnotised me. Uh, he said my fear of flying, because he's a psychotherapist as well. He psychoanalyzes you first and then deals with it. Where's this fear coming from? And it was from a fear of failure, he said. I was afraid of failing. The plane represented my failure. And the plane's failure to stay in the sky was my fear of, fail- of failing in my career, in life. And he, he, he gave me a self-hypnosis CD. And it's like a meditation that only the last five or ten minutes deals with the flying aspect. The rest of it is about coping with life. And that, to be honest, that took the place of my meetings for me. Because I don't know how it works. I just know it works for me. But again, I asked for help. I got off the plane. I didn't take the Valium. I didn't drink the whiskey. I rang Richard and got hypnotized. I got the help and it helped. I fly to New York now multiple times a year to visit the friends whatever else I do over there I fly here there you know what I mean? and it's all because of that mm-hmm. I don't have to take a Valium to land the plane because if I took a Valium I'm gone I'm done that's it 
you know and I got the bipolar thing I got I found out just I'm not sure if it was before or after Billy died in 2016 that it was a misdiagnosis just this wonderful doctor who looked at my file and actually read my file and actually gave me the time of day to listen to me and he asked me had I ever any manic episodes before taking drugs I said no and then I said he said to me Tony be truthful how much prescription drugs were you taking in 2010 while you got diagnosed and I told him and he said, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, you're not bipolar. You are just abusing drugs, prescription drugs. I said, that's what I've been trying to tell these people for years. And he said, and I, and then I kind of laughed because I said, well, I'm in a, I'm in a psychiatric war trying to tell the people that I don't have a problem in my head. <laughs> so what are they going to think? You know, the tablets are working. So he said, I believe you've been misdiagnosed and I'd like to start weaning you off your medication if you're happy to do that. And I said, that's all I wanted. Then Billy died by suicide mental health he didn't open his mouth and I wish to God that he did obviously and I was trying to stay clean and sober and trying to stay, trying to stay strong for the family at the time because not everyone in the family stayed strong and I felt like I had to and I had to make the choice about whether to come off the medication as well and I was terrified because I thought if I came off the medication I'd slip but I remember being in Las Vegas on holidays and taking my last lithium and that was September of 2016 and I'm very proud to say that I dealt with Billy's suicide with coming off the medication with the misdiagnosis and with everything that came in between by the way and I haven't been on any medication completely clean and sober since then but since 2016 I haven't been on anything no antidepressants no, no, nothing. Just self-help with the meditation, with the all the meetings up until last year. And I have been clean and sober from drugs and alcohol since November 24th, 2013. There you go. Thanks for sharing all that. You're welcome, I suppose. I hope everyone feels the same way that listens. Yeah, it's very valuable and it's very vulnerable and... It's the right way to start a great podcast and I think this podcast is is going to help a lot of people well that's what we hope to do so look uh, I think we leave it there that's the story uh, hopefully whoever has listened to this got something uh, my DMs are always open my email is always open slide in slide in uh, but you know about what we're talking about here <laughs> and, uh, I'm always very open to, to listening and to helping anybody I can because that's what this is all about so Emily thank you so much for being the guest host on the first ever episode thank you so much Tony for having me you're very welcome and uh, please check out Emily's podcast Green Rebel Podcast coming back very soon soon okay thank you
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.